So I was reading a blog article um, this week about a somewhat morbid but also kind of fascinating subject. Memorable last words of people. And, and some of them, it, it was kind of evident, they, they weren't necessarily memorable because the words were memorable. They were memorable because of who said them or, or, or because of how they passed or, or who they were. Um, like, for example, uh, Elvis Presley's last words. I'm going to go to the bathroom and read. Not so memorable, but then you find out what happened to him and you go, oh, okay, that, that, that fits. That's, that's interesting. Um, how about this one? Uh, rock and roll guitarist Buddy Rich actually died from complications and surgery. And his last words were as he was being wheeled into surgery, the nurse attending asked him, is there anything that you can't take? Referring to like medicine or anesthesia. And he immediately replied, yes, country music. Not bad. Not bad. Kind of classy. All right. I like it. Okay. A lot of people used their last words, though, to communicate things that were important to them. Um, some of them were significant because of their reflection on what was really important. Harriet Tubman, who was an escaped slave and the founder of the Underground Railroad, she died singing the song Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which I think is awesome. Okay. Right? If I got to go, maybe it's going to be like singing Sweet Low, Sweet Chariot. I, that would be a good way to go. Um, uh, Richard Mellon. Uh, of, uh, part of Carnegie Mellon, actually. Multi-millionaire investor, president of Alcoa. He had actually had a running game of tag going on with his younger brother for almost seven decades. And his last words were to call his brother over and say, last tag, you're it. Poor Andrew was tagged. He was it for four years until he passed. But that was important to them, right? And he used his last words to convey his his... his love and his care and, and his cherishing of that relationship that he had had with his brother for so many years. Uh, many people, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, T.S. Eliot, uh, John Wayne, and Humphrey Bogart, just to name a few, they had last words of affection for their spouses. Uh, and, and then you have people who had things that were important to them that you just went, okay. You know, and sometimes you felt like it was kind of a waste. Like, here's an example. Convicted murderer James Rogers was standing before a firing squad in Utah and used his last words when they said, do you have any last requests? He said, yes, a bulletproof vest, please. Smart guy. Didn't work out. Um, another, another, another convicted murderer, Thomas Grasso, used his last words to complain about his last meal. He says, I did not get the SpaghettiOs that I requested. Instead, I got spaghetti, and the press needs to know. And they did. It seems like kind of a waste, though. It really did. What I really appreciate when I was reading this post, though, was, was people who expressed a certain clarity and peace about death and expressed last words of hope or joy. Um, it, it's been said that the Renaissance sculptor Raphael, he only had one last word, that he uttered the word happy as he passed. Um, Bo Diddley, more recently, he, when he passed, he was listening to the song Walk Around Heaven, and the last thing that he did was give a thumbs up and mouth. Wow, amazing. Blues singer Bessie Smith, she said words that I hope that I can mirror. I'm going, but I'm going in the hands of the Lord. In the reading this morning, we are invited to view the last words of Jesus. 
and the journey to Jerusalem has brought us through palm branches and hosannas for the Messiah who has come to the betrayal and condemnation of a criminal. It is it is completely flipped everything upside down in a week in Jerusalem. It's taken us through the Passover supper where Jesus highlights that the real sacrificial lamb is not the one that's spread out on the table, but the one who's serving the wine and the bread and calling it his body and his blood. And he says that that will be the thing that causes the punishment to pass over those who've identified with him. It takes us through the most fragile part of Jesus' psyche where the coming betrayal and the pain and the burden of bearing the sin of the world have him so anxious and so overwhelmed that he is literally sweating blood through his forehead. We follow the journey through the kiss of Judas, through the kangaroo court that the Sanhedrin puts up, the denial and the abandonment of Jesus by all of his friends, including Peter, the parade out to Herod's palace and back, the flogging, the mocking, the conviction by Pilate and the Roman soldiers. And now, step after agonizing step, we have arrived at the end of the journey. And Jesus comes to a place called the Hill of the Skull outside town where criminals are sent to be shamed and isolated and killed. And this is the setting of the death of Jesus. And this is the place where his last words come. The thing that I want us to realize about the environment of the crucifixion, and and I'm going to get a little clinical here, okay? But it's hard to symbolize or condense the meaning of the cross into a single idea. It's hard to even, it's hard to even fit this into a single sermon, okay? I'm not even going to try. But we have to understand that to be crucified was to experience the absolute worst possible in life, I believe. Death on a cross was anything but quick or humane. It, on the contrary, it was designed to be a deterrent against criminal act where those who might have a mind to break the law upon hearing or seeing what happened to someone who was crucified, they would think twice. It was designed to humiliate. It was designed to isolate. It was designed to degrade. It was designed to exhaust people while inflicting constant excruciating pain. And the Romans had it down to a science. You were stripped naked You were tied to a heavy wooden beam, and then convicts were first nailed into place. The spikes were driven through the nerve centers of the wrists and through the tops of the feet. And that was for two reasons. One, to hold them in place, and two, to ensure that maximum pain was being inflicted. They were connected to a central post, and then the convict was then raised to hang there, symbolically isolated by being suspended between heaven and earth. While the accusers and the supporters and the bystanders alike waited for the person to eventually die. And death was by asphyxiation as a result of exhaustion. They were left in a position where they were unable to breathe. And the convict was forced to raise their body weight up on the nails that held them in place in order to be able to exhale and breathe in new oxygen. And eventually the stress and the shock combined with the blood loss would lead to a buildup of fluid in the lungs and the sac around the heart. 
the blood would pump more sluggishly, the breasts would become more and more ineffective, until finally, unable to exert themselves any longer, the condemned would actually suffocate on the water that had built up in their lungs. It is a clinically horrific process, and it robs a person of their dignity and their humanity as well as being painful. And see, here is the ultimate twist of tragedy in the crucifixion, is that the one who gave humanity breath has allowed himself to be made unable to breathe. The one who spoke creation into being has allowed himself to be put in a position where he can barely string words together into sentences because he is laboring for breath. The one who made heaven and earth is now a resident of neither. And the one who should be given all honor is made to suffer the ultimate shame and indignity. And that's the setting of the cross. And I'm just barely scratching the surface, but the reason that I've said what I've said is not in order to be shocking. It is to highlight something I believe is truly amazing. And what I believe is truly amazing is that in this context, we see the last words of Jesus, what is most important to him. What he wants to leave as a legacy for those around him to remember about the last moments of his life. And in these words, we see the most amazing transformation of history, where the upper story overcomes and completely redefines what's happening in the lower story. What God is up to completely overshadows and changes what's going on. And it's been coming for so many weeks. Ever since we started this back in January, it's been coming. We've been getting to this point where when would God be able to write the trajectory that humanity has taken? And we're finally here. And it happens in the last words of Jesus. Because injustice becomes justified by forgiveness here. And hopelessness becomes destroyed by mercy here. And what looks like the ultimate tragedy is revisioned by the bold claim that this is not the end of the story. This is actually the beginning of the new story. Jesus' first last words on the cross bring us up short right away. And they should. Because they are a universal plea for mercy. A plea to God for mercy on his killers. Those acting in ignorance and those who know exactly what they're doing, consciously condemning him falsely at the foot of the cross. Father, don't hold this sin against them. They don't understand what they're doing. It amazes me. I mean, I mean many people have claimed innocence of crimes. While, and while our justice system is a human-driven effort, okay, and, and it always will be, it is pretty rare in our modern systems now that someone who is truly innocent of any wrongdoing whatsoever is convicted. We can argue whether the punishment fits the crime until we're blue in the face, but rarely do you have anybody who's completely and totally innocent that gets convicted of anything, okay? Those are, those are the ones that make real headlines, you know, is when somebody's been sitting on death row for 12 years and then, you know, all of a sudden new evidence comes to light. and it, that, it doesn't happen very often at all. But what we see here in the story 
is that it is absolutely not that way with Jesus. Okay? The author of the four Gospels say that in order for the story to progress as God wants it to, it has to be that way. Jesus has to be innocent, innocent yet made guilty in order to bring any kind of resolution to the problem of sin that's been plaguing humanity since the beginning. See, if there's one thing that the story has shown us thus far, it is this. Humanity is completely unable to do anything to resolve the problem of our disconnection with God because of sin. We have tried to offer sacrifices. It doesn't work. We have tried to live righteously. It doesn't work. We have tried to fall on his mercy alone by our own. It it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because you have to have an intersection of justice and mercy somewhere. There has to be that perfect area where the two can come together. And humanity is unable to find that. There has to be divine intervention in order to bring a resolution to this problem. But just God entering into the story through the incarnation of Jesus, that's not what fixes it. Jesus can be the model moral example. He can be the great teacher. He can be the miraculous healer. He can be the prophet. He can be whatever you want him to be. It's not going to fix the problem, is it? And so anybody who's got this idea about him being a political messiah or a good guy or or a teacher of wisdom or any of those things, and I'm not just talking back then, I'm talking about even right now. Anybody who's got any of those ideas about Jesus being those things, that's great and all, and he was all of those things. But it doesn't fix the core issue, does it? Jesus healing every one of their physical infirmities would not take care of the sin issue. Jesus teaching us all of the wisdom of heaven would not fix the issue that's in my heart. None of those other... Jesus being the model, moral example for, for how a person should live in society as a pattern for me, it's not going to fix the fact that I can't do that. I can't do it consistently. I can't be that person. There's only one thing that can fix that. And that is that the innocent must be made guilty so that the guilty can be made innocent. And this is a theme that we've seen running through the story from the very beginning, okay? Even from Genesis chapter 3, there's this little thing kind of tucked into Genesis 3 that we miss sometimes. You know, Adam and Eve, they, 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 they realize that they are shamed. They realize that they are exposed, that their sin is exposed, and that, and that they're exposed before God, and they can't, they can't come in front of God as they are. And then there's this little thing where it says, and God made clothes for them out of animal skins to cover them. And I think we missed that part, that, that right after the first sin, there is a sacrifice, of innocent creation to cover over guilt from the very beginning. Something innocent has to be made guilty and suffer the punishment so that the guilty can at least be made temporarily innocent and and be able to be in the presence of God. And you see this all the way through. Okay, this is what made the Passover such an important idea. Is that the only thing that was going to separate Israel from Egypt as as the punishment passed over 
was who had the innocent sacrifice painting the door frames. And the innocent lamb, the blood is shed and put out there on the door frames to cover over so that the punishment will pass. In Leviticus, there's, this idea gets developed even more. There's there, the most holy festival of Jewish history is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And, and on the Day of Atonement, the priest makes just a series of sacrifices so that they are able to, once a year, come into the presence of God in the tabernacle or the temple, come into the Holy of Holies, and be able to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And they do it in this manner. They take one animal and they sacrifice it. And they sprinkle the blood. And then they take another animal. It's a young goat. And they don't sacrifice it. But they take it out of the presence of the Holy of Holies where it's been in there with God. And they take it out. And they take it outside the temple, and they take it outside the camp, and they take it outside the walls of the city, and they take it out to the edge of the desert. And the priest lays hands on this animal and says, in a symbolic way, the sin that is to come of the entire nation is transferred onto this animal. And then they send it out into the wilderness. This is where we get the term scapegoat from. Innocent things being made guilty so that guilty things may be found innocent again. It's been happening all the way through Scripture. And Jesus brings ultimate meaning to it. Because up until now, the innocent things are what? They're created things, right? They're temporary. They're material. They're, they're flawed as well, even though they're innocent. Okay, They, they don't last forever. And so their effects are temporary as well. But now something is different. Now the one who is innocent, who's being made guilty, is not temporal. He's eternal. He's not merely created. He is the creator. And he takes on the punishment. And he is made guilty. And he says, let the guilt rest on me. Don't let the guilt rest on them. What is most important to Jesus in his last words? That we might find his forgiveness. And most people that are there don't get that. Most people that are there don't get that. But, but, but they say something that is so important and so very true. You look at it. The crowd say it. The religious leaders say it. Even one of the thieves that's being crucified on the cross next to Jesus says it. What kind of Messiah are you if you have saved others but can't save yourself? And they say it as like an accusation. He's saving everybody else, but he can't save himself. And, and if you understand what's going on, you go, well, that's exactly what has to happen. That's totally true, and that's exactly the way that it should be. Because he can't save himself and save everybody else. It doesn't work that way. The innocent has to become guilty so that the guilty might be found innocent. He gets what he doesn't deserve 
so that you and I get what we don't deserve. And like I said, most people don't get it, but in the middle of it, there's one person that does, and it's the most unlikely person. That's what I love. And Luke is full of this, okay? The Gospel of Luke is full of people who should know what Jesus is about not getting it, and people who have no right knowing what Jesus should be about, and they get it. It happens all the time. I mean, it's, it's happening with Samaritan women. It's happening with Syrophoenician women. It's happening with, you know, it's happening with lepers. It's happening with blind people. I mean, all these people that shouldn't know what Jesus is about, they get it. And the people who should have been studying up on their Bible for years, they, they have no clue. In fact, they are actually angry to the point of killing Jesus because he doesn't match their expectations of what Messiah ought to be. And it's no different here at the foot of the cross. The religious leaders, they've condemned him. If you were Messiah, you'd be able to save yourself. The crowds, they've condemned him. If you were Messiah, you'd be able to save yourself. And this one thief joins up with them and says, yeah, what kind of Messiah are you? Like, save yourself. And while you're at it, why don't you get us off here with it? And the other thief is like, are you nuts? Do you not understand what's happening here? I think I may understand what's going on here. I totally deserve what's happening. This guy doesn't. And maybe this is just like the way God has designed it to be from the very beginning of, 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 the, of the innocent becoming guilty so that the guilty might be innocent. And I can only imagine what's going on in the mind of this thief, but I mean, he's, he's totally grasping at straws. I mean, he's dead already, right? He's dead already. It's just his body just needs to catch up to it. The judgment's been passed. There is no hope. And yet, grasping at straws, hope in the face of hopelessness, he has one little thing that he's like, maybe, just maybe. And he looks at Jesus, who, I mean, by all accounts, I mean, like, he's dead too, right? He's just as hopeless as he is. But maybe things are different than the way that they appear. Maybe the lower story is not the way things are supposed to go. Maybe there's another story. Maybe there's an upper story. And in a moment of desperation and hope, the thief breaks out of the lower story into the upper story and says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because obviously I believe that there's something more to this and I believe that you're righteous and I believe that you are the king and that you could do something about this for me. Jesus turns to him and says it'll be so it'll be that way today today you will be with me in paradise such an amazing thing for us because it turns everything upside down when we think of Jesus and mercy doesn't it we think that mercy should be extended to people that kind of deserve it but haven't made it all the way you know, like like providing extra credit when when you've you've been really trying for that grade, but you just didn't make it, and the teacher goes, "Okay, you know what? I'll give you a little bit extra to kind of you know put you up over the top there." Okay, if that's the way that mercy worked, then the people that deserve it are the Pharisees. The people that deserve it are 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 the religious leaders that have been really trying. Or or maybe we just say that mercy is for those who act out of ignorance. Okay, maybe mercy 
is for the Roman soldiers who they don't know anything about this and they aren't breaking any laws of the land. They're just doing their job, man. Maybe they're the ones that deserve the mercy. Who, do, who gets the mercy here? The least likely person. The one who knows better, the one who's totally guilty, and the one who has absolutely no hope. That's the one who gets mercy. And it redefines mercy for us because simply we now know this. The only limit on who God will extend his mercy to. The only limit is are they willing to accept the mercy or not? Are they willing to ask for it or not? That's the only limitation to the invitation now. For you and me, do we need the mercy of God? Do we want the mercy of God? The only limitation on it is, are we willing to ask for it or not? It's not how hard we work. It's not how much we know. It's not how good we are. Are we willing to ask for his mercy or not? Even today, are we willing to ask His mercy or not? Because I, I think, I think somehow we've we have we have still gotten into this mindset that mercy is God making up for the difference after I've tried as hard as I can. Not that that mercy and grace are not just the things that make up for it when I mess up. Mercy, are the, mercy and grace are the things that even enable me to live. I always come back to that Dallas. Willard quote that I love so much. Grace is not for the sinner. Grace is for the saint. Right? You want to know who burns up grace more than anybody else? The saint who is trying to live like Jesus. I mean, they burn up grace because grace is the reason that we are even able to do anything good. And if we were willing to surrender to that kind of mercy and that kind of grace, what would that do to us? But these are the words that Jesus says to us. He's like, I want you to realize the thing that is most important to me is that you find forgiveness and that you you know my mercy is there for you because of this. I don't care how unlikely a candidate you are for mercy. My mercy is there for you. Those are the things that he wants you to know as he dies, as he labors for breath. And then there is the last one, and I love the last one even probably more than any. I was, uh, I was remembering, um, with all of the recent plane crashes and things like that that have gone on, I was remembering like the first plane crash story that I really remember as a kid was the one that happened on October 16, 1987. It was, it was Flight 255, Northwest Airlines. It crashed in Detroit, Michigan right after takeoff. It's the first one that I remember. I don't, know, I don't know why I remember that one. I just remember that one as a kid kind of being when I was old enough to realize like, oh, wow, planes like crash. Ugh. You know, and then of course we were flying to Texas for Christmas like a little ways later, you know, and my parents were having to like, it's okay. It doesn't happen very often. You're going to be okay. Well, what if it happens this time? Jesus loves you. You're going to be okay. You know, it's like, okay. You know, it's, I mean, I'm I'm like, you know, 10 years old. I'm still figuring this all out. I don't know if that's such a good answer or not right now, but it's all right. But I remember this one, 
It killed 155 passengers and all the crew. There was only one survivor. That was the other reason I remember this, is that there was, it was everybody dies, but there's one survivor, and it's a four-year-old girl. Her name's Cecilia Chichen. Okay? She is found wandering around the wreckage, completely unharmed, really, I mean, for the most part. I mean, she's got the little, you know, bruises and scrapes and scratches, but no injuries. No, nothing's broken, no nothing. And everybody's going, what on earth? How? And as they start piecing together the investigation of what happens, they realize that the reason that she survives this accident is because of someone else. See, moments before the plane was about to crash, knowing that all was lost anyway, her mother unbuckled her own seatbelt turned around, knelt down in front of Cecilia, and just wrapped herself around her. And as the plane crashed, her body took all the devastation and spared it from Cecilia. There's an interview, if you, if you, uh, there's actually an interview with her that they did very, very recently. I mean, she's a, you know, she's a woman in her 30s now, right? And, and just hearing her kind of talk about the life that she's had as a result, you know, and she's kind of going, you know, I got a, I got a scar here, I got a scar here, I got a scar back here, I got a scar. and then she's also, you know, and I got a, and I got a tattoo of an airplane here because I never ever, even if I forget all the scars, I never ever want to forget that my life came at the expense of someone else, and 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 that and that I've lived through tragedy, and and I am. I am more whole for having lived through tragedy. It was an amazing interview. Uh, I, I, you should you should definitely look it up. But her mom Paula took the brunt of the trauma on her body to spare her beloved child from the trauma. And I know of no better illustration than that to describe what's happening with Jesus for us, and also then what happens with Jesus and his father when he says his very last words, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. In this statement, I think, is the true glory of the cross. For the human perspective, see, even if all this redemption is brought to us through Jesus' death, his death is still an unthinkable tragedy that cannot be justified by any means. If this is the cost of my salvation, then it's not worth it to God if he dies. It's not worth it. If you look at the scales and they're unbalanced, it's just not worth it. Even if, it, even if God ordains it, I still look at it on the scales and I say it's just not worth it. But Jesus himself in this hopes against hope, even as the thief hoped in him, that this is not the end of his story. And that beyond this tragedy is miraculous restoration. Can I know the mind of Jesus on the cross? Do I know that in that moment that he knows, I mean, yes, he has said, I will rise again in three days, but, but do I know what's going on in his head at that moment when he is laboring for breath and, and, and as most people labor at the end of their lives as death is upon them wrestling with that fear of like if it's all true if it's all true 
And somehow in the middle of that, Jesus chooses to hope beyond all hope and say, okay, everything that I've entrusted to the Father, I believe is true. And so I put my spirit in your hands, God. And as Jesus uses his body to shelter us from the devastation of sin, God then turns and shelters his son from the devastation of death. And even as he dies, we find out that it's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. A new light is going to dawn out of the hour of darkness. A new beginning is going to be launched from the death of Messiah. And if hope is alive now, it will flourish in a way that no one ever imagined as a stone is rolled away from an empty grave. And so I think the invitation to us today is very, very plain and very, very simple. It's been building up to this time and place for weeks and weeks and weeks, and so I just I put it out there for you. Okay? We've we've been spending this time rediscovering who Jesus is. We've been rediscovering what his entrance into the story means for us. What it means for him to be the son of God. What his kingdom is all about. And the direction that he is going and that he calls us to in discipleship. And now we reach the heart of the gospel that Jesus did for you and me. What Paula did for Cecilia on that fateful day. As the prophet Isaiah said, the punishment that was upon him has brought us peace. And by his wounds, we have been made whole again. He had a choice to make. He could have jettisoned himself out of that, saved his own life, saved all of the pain and devastation of sin from his body and survived. Or, or he could wrap himself around you and save you. And he chose you. And he chose me. And he still chooses you. And he still chooses me. And he knows what I've been up to in the last few days. And he knows how many times that I've denied him by my lifestyle. And I've denied him by my words. And I've denied him in my thoughts. And he still chooses me. And he still chooses what he says in response is I want you to choose me back I want you to choose me back my mercy is there for you to take advantage of if you will take advantage of it and so I lay the invitation out for you today it is time for you to choose to enter into the mercy of Christ take him on in baptism. Let him wash you. Let him cleanse you. Let him take the punishment that you may have peace. Let him be wounded that you may be healed. Because it is not, and this, this I can't say this enough, it was not, he was in great pain, but it was not a pain for him to say that for you. In fact, it was the greatest joy for him. And it always is the greatest joy 
for God to say, I extend mercy to you. I extend forgiveness to you. I will take the blame for you. And what he asks and what we invite you today as we stand, as we sing, as we worship, is to choose him back. If that means rededicating your life to him in your heart and saying, I will be your disciple. I've been kind of wandering, I've been messing around, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let you be Lord again. Do that. If that means that today you need to take him on in baptism, you look like, I have not ever chosen God. I've, I've played around with him, but I have never actually chosen to let him be Lord. I have never chosen to enter into that mercy. It is time to choose today. Come in and give him your life and be baptized. We want to do that for you. We want to help you with that. I pray that you will respond to the invitation that he gives you. Enter into his mercy. Enter into his forgiveness. Commit your spirit into his hands because he cares for you. And he took the punishment. And he took what you deserved so that you could get what you don't deserve. Eternal life with him now and forever. Let's stand. Let's worship together.